The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, uh, as we've already prayed, as we've already talked about, we are just grateful to get to be with your people and get to be uh, gathered together under the name of Jesus. And it's a, a privilege and it's an honor and it's a a gift from you, God, but by your grace, we don't do this. We don't get together, and we don't sing, and we don't read your word, and we don't preach, and we don't take communion, and we don't do any of the things we do except because of you. And so I just pray that we would have eyes to see that tonight. God, we got a heavy word, Lord, from your word, and it's true, and it's helpful, and it leads to life, which is what you promise. God, but we need your help. And would you soften our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us? Would you encourage us? Would you bind us to yourself? Well, we need you. We love you. And for all these things, in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 51. Uh, it's going to take quite a bit of time to get there, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, i got to do a lot of stuff first to kind of get us all on the same page. Uh, before we get into all of the sermon, I just want to remind you of something that I hope you know to be true, and that is the fact that I love you. And I, I want Jesus for you. And my job as your pastor, especially if you call Citizens Church home, is not to tell you a bunch of things that I know you'd be really excited to hear and then send you out into your week smiling for a few minutes. Uh, my job is to help you flourish with God. My job is to help you look more like Jesus. And so sometimes we got to look at some things that you uh, 
just on the surface are going to not like or that are going to step on your toes. And I say that because all the past couple of weeks while I've been working on it, it's been stepping on my toes. And I want you to know that it's not because I take uh, delight in making you upset at me. That's not fun for me. Uh, I want you to look like Jesus. And I want me to, all of us, to look like Jesus. And so that's uh, my disclaimer as we head into what we're about to talk about, because today we're talking about shame. And here's how I would define shame for us. This comes from New Testament scholar Taylee Lau. He says this, Shame is the painful emotion that arises from an awareness that one has fallen short of some standard, ideal, or goal. Shame is the feeling of not being good enough. Shame is the feeling of I'm lacking, I'm not enough, that there was a standard put on by myself or by others, or maybe even as we'll talk about by God, and shame is the feeling that comes that I am not worth it, I am not worthy, I could not live up to the standard. Now, that feeling of shame can come from two kind of primary areas, either things that you have done or things that have been done to you. And we actually had a member of our teaching team write a really, really good article on that second category. Shame that you have because of things done to you. Shame put on you. Just because of the scope and time for this sermon, we're going to kind of set that to the article. So if you're struggling with shame because of something done to you, that's going to be on the website tomorrow. Please read it. Check it out. It's a really helpful resource. But today, I just want to focus on shame because of things that you have done. So I want just all of what we're about to talk about, talk about and say through that lens of shame because of things that you have done, wrongs that you have done. All right. Now, that disclaimer again, a lot of disclaimers today. Let's chat. Uh, I don't know of a more hated feeling or emotion in our society than the emotion of shame. Shame is the universal emotional enemy of America. Like, we have categories for when it's okay to feel some of the other painful feelings, right? Like, we have categories for when it's okay to feel pain, when it's okay to feel grief or fear or sadness or anger, but shame as a whole just kind of is like, no, no thanks, we don't like shame. We kind of collectively as a society wish to avoid shame as much as possible. So think about it uh, in light of Brene Brown, right? So Brene Brown is kind of the leading voice right now in our world about shame. She became popular in 2010. She had a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability. It went viral all over YouTube. She's kind of the one famous for the guilt versus shame dynamic. If you've heard of this, where guilt is I've done wrong, shame is I am wrong. And she's gone so far as to say that there is no constructive reason for shame ever in any circumstance in your life. In fact, a few years ago, she did an interview with Oprah, and she was quoted as saying this, I think shame is lethal. I think shame is destructive, and I think we are swimming in it deep. As a culture, we hate shame. This is why one of the things we are universally afraid of as a society is being canceled, right? Because what is canceling? It's just public shame. It's all of the collective group saying, you are not good enough. You are not worthy. You cannot be a part of the group because you have not lived up to the ideal. And on the one hand, this kind of fear and hatred of shame sort of makes sense, right? Like collectively, I think we could all see examples or have examples of the corrosive, destructive power of shame, right? Areas of our own life, areas of our relationships or other people where shame has just kind of had this corrosive, destructive effect where it separated us from God and from other people. It's kind of caused this corrosion within us where we pull back and we hide because we feel inadequate or not worthy of love. And yet, here's the problem. 
The Bible isn't nearly as anti-shame as our culture or modern-day counseling are. Let me say that again. The Bible isn't nearly as anti-shame as our culture and modern-day counseling. So here's my concern. I'm not anti-counseling by any way, shape, or form. I'm not. I think counseling is very good. A lot of our people, some of our people in the church have been trained or are training to be godly counselors. A lot of our folks are in counseling. I've done counseling. I'm not anti-counseling at all. I think it can be a really good and helpful thing. But some of my worry with a culture, and I mean that broadly in America and our church specifically, so centered around and fluent in counseling and therapeutic ideas, is that there are ways our theology of shame has been more shaped by therapy than by the Word of God. Because we swim so much in therapeutic ideas and culture, and there's a lot of good there. I'm not throwing all of it out. There's a lot of good. I think that shame in particular is one of the ways we have been more shaped by therapy than by the Word of God. Here's what I mean. I think most of us would agree with Brown. Like, I think most of us on the surface, if we took a a quick straw poll in the room, would say, hey, is there ever any good reason for shame? And I think the vast majority of us would say, maybe in like the worst case scenarios and examples, but overall, probably not. Like, guilt can be helpful. Guilt, I've done some bad things. That can be constructive. That can be helpful. Shame, not helpful ever. Uh, Every therapy and psychology article I read this week said that exact thing. Guilt, helpful, shame, bad, reject shame, deal with guilt. And I would agree with part of it. Shame can absolutely be destructive and corrosive. But according to the teachings of the Bible, shame is not always destructive. In fact, sometimes shame is redemptive. I'll take it one step even further. Sometimes shame is, in the words of one theologian, a severe mercy of God in our lives. Shame can absolutely be destructive and toxic, but in the narrative of the scriptures, shame can also be a powerful and a healthy part of our moral formation. Shame can be a severe mercy from God. I think a really clear example of this is Paul in his back and forth letters to the church at Corinth. So what we have in our Bibles is 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So Paul writes 1st Corinthians to the church at Corinth, and they're uh, really just a church gone wild. Like, they're all over the place. They're doing all of this sort of rebellious actions and attitudes towards God, and he's just, I mean, blasting them for their sin all throughout 1st Corinthians. And he even says this in several places. 1st Corinthians 6, 5. He's telling them, hey, stop Uh, taking each other to court, stops suing each other, and this is what he says, I say this to your shame. Later on in the, the book, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he's talking about their unbelief, and he says this, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Again, I say this to your shame. So he writes to them and says, hey, some things are off in your life. Like some things are not okay. Some things you're rebelling against God in, and that's not okay. And one of the things I think God wants to use in your life to bring you back to himself is shame. And as the story continues, they repent. And so Paul writes them another letter, 2 Corinthians. And this is what he says, verse 8 of chapter 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces 
death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. He says, I grieved you. I said, I said, I say this to your shame and you felt shame. And so you repented and I'm a little sad that it made you sad, but I'm really not that sad. It made you sad because why now you're zealous for the things of God. Now you've repented and now you're zealous to follow him. And so my goal for, as we kind of think about tonight and where we're going with Psalm 51 is that if we're not careful, our view of shame can be so co-opted and shaped by modern therapy that it's the enemy, that it's only ever to be avoided, that it's never helpful, that we can miss what God might do in this powerful tool of spiritual formation in our lives. And if we throw it out, that we might actually miss a severe mercy of God. And so I wanted, wanted to do, as we look at Psalm 51, is I want to talk about destructive shame and redemptive shame. Those are the categories I'm going to operate with. There's going to be a chart. It's going to be tons of fun. Destructive shame and constructive, or redemptive shame and destructive shame. And in all of this, it comes down to not what you're feeling, but what you do with that feeling. It all comes down to not what you're feeling, but what you do with that feeling. Psalm 51. Uh, if you'll notice there at the top of your Bible, if it's like mine, there's a little title, which is really helpful when you're reading the Psalms. It kind of tells you the backstory of what's going on. And this title says, now to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone to into Bathsheba. So if you don't know the backstory, let me just do it real quick. Second Samuel 11, second Samuel 12, we're going long today, just stay with me. Second Samuel 11, David is king of Israel, and he should be out to war. He should be fighting with his nation against the enemy, the Philistines, but he's not. He's abdicating and giving up his responsibility. And he's walking on the roof because he has nothing else to do, and he's being lazy. And he sees a woman named Bathsheba, and he calls to her, and they sleep together. I would agree with most theologians that say that this is abuse, that Bathsheba has no chance to say no. If she does, she's going to be killed because he's the king. So he takes advantage of his power and authority. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. And David's like, crap, what am I going to do? Here's my plan. I'm going to bring her husband, Uriah, home from war. And when he's home from war, he's obviously going to sleep with Bathsheba. He's going to think the child is his. And so he brings Uriah back home. But Uriah is an honorable man. And so he says, no, I'm going to sleep at the doorpost. I'm not going in. All of the men back in the battlefield, they can't be home with their wives. I'm not going to go hang out with my wife. Instead, I'm going to sleep here. And he's more honorable than King David, way above and beyond. So David's like, crap, what am I going to do? Maybe I'll get him drunk. And so he invites Uriah to a party, gives him a bunch of alcohol. Uriah ends up falling asleep on the couch. That didn't work either. Step three, he sends Uriah back to battle with a letter for the commander that says, hey, put Uriah at the front of the army. And when the enemy attacks, everyone else pull back so that Uriah is sure to die. He sends Uriah back with a death sentence. So in one chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, who is king, has become an adulterer and an assaulter and probably a raper and a murderer. And what's fascinating and wicked about the end of chapter 11 is that he doesn't care. 
Like there's nothing in the text where he feels bad at all. He brings Bathsheba into his house. They get married. He kind of just wants to go on with his life. The problem is that God's not going to let him do that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends Nathan, who is the prophet, the one who speaks to God's people on behalf of God. And Nathan shows up and tells him this awesome story at the beginning of 2 Samuel 12, if you've read it. He shows up and says, David, let me tell you a hypothetical. There's two men, and one guy has a ton of livestock, more sheep than he can imagine, so many sheep. One guy has one sheep, and he loves this sheep so much, so much so that he actually feeds it at the dinner table like it's his kid. That's how much he loves this little sheep. And this rich man has some visitors from out of town, and he wants to feed them. And instead of killing one of his sheep, he goes and takes the one soul like a daughter sheep of this guy. And David just gets, I mean, he's pissed. Like, he's so mad. And he just lashes out. He's like, that guy should be killed. And if you read the story, Nathan has this incredible line, 2 Samuel 12, 7. He says, David, you are the man. Boom. Psalm 51 is David's response. Let's pick it up in verse 1. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So David starts out and says, okay, Lord, I'm, I've sinned. I'm acknowledging it before you. I have sinned. And here's the deal with destructive shame and redemptive shame. Both start at the same place. Both have the same feeling. I feel bad. It's an awareness, right? Shame is an awareness. There was a standard set by God or by myself or by somebody else. I have rebelled and not lived up to the standard. I feel bad. Both start in the same place. Then they start to diverge. So destructive shame next says that the core problem is mistakes or accidents. Destructive shame says, okay, yeah, I feel bad because I messed up, but I'm like kind of a good person. I've just done some things wrong. Like, I, I'm generally, I'm okay, I just kind of made some mistakes, I kind of messed up, I didn't really mean to, but at my core, I'm a good person who just kind of did some bad things. But that's not how David talks about it. That's not the language he uses. Keep going in Psalm 51, start in verse 3 again. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you being God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David there is not saying he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba and he hasn't sinned against Uriah. He's just saying in the grand scheme of things, because of God's holiness, first and foremost, this is a sin against him that plays itself out in sins against other people. Keep going. So that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So destructive shame, the core problem is mistakes or accidents, but in redemptive shame, the core problem is our sin nature. Notice what David says. Not, I'm generally a good person who did some bad things. No, I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. I was brought into the world as rebellious against God, as bent against God and towards sin and the world through and through. It's this doctrine that theologians call total depravity. And here's what it means. It means the whole nature of humanity, not only the body and its desires, but the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul is corrupt. That's what David's getting at. 
all of me through and through is corrupt. And so here's the deal. Modern therapy would tell you shame is bad because it says you're a bad person. And the Bible would say shame is telling you the truth. <laughs> you are a bad person. That's the good news of the gospel. We'll get to that, I promise. Or to use the language of the scriptures, you're a sinner. You're not just one who sins. You're not just one who rebels. You are rebellious in your very nature. You are against God. Sin is not just what you do. It is who you are. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, right? We are by nature children of wrath. And so here's the deal. You can agree with Brene Brown all you want to. I would maybe caution against it. It's a relatively new idea, about 20 years old, that guilt and shame are different. But we don't have to go there. That's not the point of this sermon. You can agree. You can say guilt is I've done wrong, shame is I am wrong. We should separate out the two. That's fine. David claims both. He just does, right? He says, I have both done wrong, and in case you don't think that's bad enough, I am wrong. I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. I've sinned and I'm a sinner. So what's the solution? Well, destructive shame says the solution is positive self-love. Hey, you're not a bad person. You're a good person. You just made some mistakes. You just messed up. Let's just do better. Or we're like Christian about it. Hey, don't feel bad about it. Jesus died for you. Let's just kind of move on. It's not the measures of Psalm 51. Look at what David says, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So destructive shame says, hey, it's just an accident. Don't worry about it. You're good. But redemptive shame says, no, you are broken through and through. And so you need to repent and experience true, real, lasting healing and cleansing from God. I love the language of this psalm. If you're a Bible memorizer, which I would encourage all of us to be, Psalm 51, 7 and 8 is so beautiful. Purge me with hyssop. It's this branch they would use in ancient Jewish ceremonial cleansings. It's a, a part of their practice before God to invite him to cleanse them. He says, I need that. God, I don't, I don't need some... some uh, some placating. I don't need you just to kind of tell me I'm good, Nathan. I don't need you just to remind me, like, don't worry about it. You're a chosen king. He says, I need cleansing from God. I need redemption. I need healing. I need to be purged of my sin. And lastly, there's the results. A destructive shame after the solution of positive self-love, the result is positive self-esteem, right? Hey, you're right. I do feel better about myself. You're right. I do feel good. Or more shame, because what happens, at least in the Christianized version, is we say, hey, don't worry about it. Jesus has died for you, so you're good. And we start thinking, okay, why do I not believe I'm enough? Like, why do I not believe I'm enough? You're telling me the answer to my shame is to believe I'm enough. Why do I not feel like I'm enough? Because the gospel says, actually, you're not enough. And that's the good news of Jesus, is that you're not. And yet he died. I'm getting ahead of myself. David has a deeper hope. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The result for David in this redemptive shame is gospel hope that drives him to worship and holiness. Create in me a clean 
heart, oh God. Open my lips, and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to teach other people to sing, and I'm going to praise you, and I'm going to worship you, but you have to be the one to make me clean. Redemptive shame in Psalm 51 has been a severe mercy in the life of David. Painful? Absolutely. (laughs) Feels good? Definitely not. In a severe mercy of God. Because shame is not just an enemy that serves no constructive purpose whatsoever at any point for any reason. Shame becomes a tool in the life of David declared through the clarity and compassion and courage and conviction of Nathan to bring David back to himself, to experience true healing and true freedom and true joy and true salvation. All right, take a breath. We're okay. What does this mean for all of us? All right, that's the chart, that's the thing. What does this mean? Here's where the rubber hits the road. Let me just give you an example of how this would play itself out in our church. So you're in community group, and you're in that time of community group we call Engage the Heart, which if you're not familiar, that's where we split off men and women to confess sin to one another and pray for one another and care for one another and encourage one another in the gospel. And someone shares about the week that they've had. And you can fill in the blank with whatever sin you want to fill in. They're saying, hey, uh, this week I yelled at my spouse. I just verbally berated them. I never apologized. Or, hey, this week I looked at porn and I acted out. Or, hey, this week I gossiped about my friend. I just made up a bunch of lies. I threw her under the bus. Don't tell her. Fill in the blank. Doesn't matter. Whatever you want to put in there. And rightfully, the group wants to speak the gospel to them hopefully, that's what we're training our groups to do, right, is to remind them of the gospel. And so they say things like, hey, Christ died for you, and he's forgiven you, and he calls you son or daughter of himself, and you're washed clean and made new if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, is all of that true? Yes, (laughs) this is not a trick question. Is all of it true? Yes, absolutely. And before that person repents, should they feel shame over the acts they have done? Also, yes. Shameful things are shameful. But what happens is that we throw out the shame category when really it's a gift from God. Because if you sin against a holy God, if you sin against another person, that should produce a sense of Godward shame. Now just imagine, can you imagine if the David situation goes differently? All right, so imagine David has done everything he's done. He has assaulted Bathsheba. He's killed Uriah. He wants to go on like life is normal, right? And Nathan shows up and is like, hey man, all good. Don't worry about it. Like, you're the chosen king of Israel, right? Like, let's just kind of move on. God's got a plan for your life. He's called you to be king. Don't worry about it. Let's just kind of keep on going. Or maybe he says, hey, man, like, that was, that was kind of bad, but, like, you're a good person. Like, I know you're good. You made some mistakes. Don't, don't really worry about it. Or imagine he shows up and says everything he says. David, you are the man. And David's like, hey, dude, why are you shaming me? Mm-mm. No thanks. Mm-mm. That's shame. I don't like that. Mm. Tastes bad. Ugh. <laughs> That's how it would go in our society, right? I would say that might be how it goes in a lot of our groups. But instead, Nathan shows up and he says, hey, David, this is off. Like, this is 
wrong. You have sinned. You have gone against God. Your sin has hurt and affected and completely changed these people's lives. This is broken, and it's extra broken because of your identity. Like, you're supposed to be the chosen king of Israel who helps lead forward God's people towards God, and you've rebelled against that and gone the other way. This is broken. And instead of disregarding it or saying, Nathan, stop shaming me, David owns it, and he says, yes, I have sinned before the Lord. And he feels the shame. And God uses it to change his heart. Listen, if David doesn't feel shame over this Bathsheba stuff, he doesn't write Psalm 51. He just doesn't. He doesn't write, create in me a clean heart, O God. He doesn't write, renew a right spirit within me. He doesn't write against you and you only have I sinned. He doesn't write, purge me with hyssop. He writes none of that except for the godly and redemptive shame. And that's where holiness comes. That's where true redemption and gospel life is found. Shame is meant to be, if we let it, the severe mercy of God in our lives that though incredibly and extremely painful and should not last forever, is meant as a gift from God to pull us back to the reality of who God is and the fact that we have rebelled against him and that we never move past our great need for the gospel of Jesus. But what happens when shame becomes the enemy is that we spend more time using the gospel to fight our shame than we do using the gospel to fight our sin. And repentance can be more about not feeling bad about our sin anymore and less about receiving absolution and forgiveness and cleansing from God, which is what we truly need. Because shame can be destructive. Right? We can hang our heads absolutely in shame, and it can make us be, it can be corrosive, and it can pull us back from God absolutely. But if we're not careful, shame becomes the enemy where I just don't want to feel bad before God anymore, and instead, not a tool God might use to draw our hearts to repentance and lift our heads back to Himself in the good news of the gospel. I'll say it this way if we're not careful, we can think the goal of maturity when it comes to shame is to pacify our conscience, not purify our lives. And this has been sitting on me for years. (laughs) Taylor Lau, he wrote this book, Redemptive Shame, four years ago, and it just messed me up because we can so often go, shame is the enemy. How do I use the gospel to not feel shame anymore? Rather than, and we run from our shame, rather than letting the gospel bring us through our shame to cleansing and redemption and freedom from God. So we can run and we can say, no, shame's the enemy. And we can be more interested in not feeling bad than we are about going to God to receive true cleansing and forgiveness in which flourishing comes after. So I love the language of Paul. Hey, Corinthians, I'm not upset that I shamed you. I'm sad that it made you sad for a little bit, but man, look at what God has done. You've repented that he's redeemed you, that he's made you new, he's led you to holiness. Look at the zeal for godliness that you have. Look at the lives of flourishing that Paul is able to say, 1 Corinthians, you're doing terrible. You should repent and turn back to Jesus. And 2 Corinthians, he says, I am so proud of the godly zeal you have for Christ. That's what I want more of. That's what, I'm not platitudes, not like, Tim, don't worry about it. Not like, hey, man, no big deal. I want, hey, no, you've rebelled against God in the goodness of the gospel. He lifts your head back to himself. That's true healing. That's true freedom. And that's the invitation of Psalm 51. Look back at verse 16. David writes, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. God, you're not going to accept anything I try to do to make you happy with me again. You're just not. 
here's what he will accept. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God is after our broken and contrite hearts. That's redemptive shame. That's what contrite means. It's a feeling of guilt and shame over what we have done. And God says, I want that because that is what I will redeem. I want that because that is where healing is found. I want that because that is where true life and redemption is found. God is after our broken and contrite hearts. He, in the scriptures, disciplines those he loves. How beautiful of a promise is that? God, you're showing me my sin so much right now, and it hurts, and I want to run from you in my sin, but the promise of Scripture is that you discipline those, not who you hate, but who you love. So show me more, I guess. <laughs> what a scary thought that is. In fact, because the gospel is true, and because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right, Romans 8.1, no penalty, no ultimate punishment, no ultimate shame for those in Christ Jesus, that then we are freed up to feel the temporal shame meant to drive us back to Christ. Because we are not made with, with, right with God on our own basis, on our own works, on our own deeds, on our own church attendance, on our own family of origin, because we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God, we are freed up to feel the temporal shame because it reminds us of what is true, namely that we cannot save ourselves. Now we need a savior, not just to enter into the Christian life, but for all of the Christian life. Because here's the, the problem with platitudes, right? Somebody shows up to group, here's my sin, here's my struggle, here's what I'm going through, and they're like, I just can't believe I'm not good enough. Like, I just, I can't believe I am good enough for God, I'm just struggling to believe I'm good enough, and everyone's like, don't worry about it, you're good enough. And the answer of the gospel over and over and over again is, you're not, and you never will be. And that's the good news of grace. That's the good news of Jesus, right? That you are not enough, but Jesus is. And that you can't do enough, but Jesus did. And that you can't save yourself, but Jesus will. Jesus has. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that we are so freed up to not be okay. Don't tell me I'm doing all right. The gospel tells me I don't have to be. Don't tell me I'm, I'm kind of a good person who makes some mistakes. The gospel tells me I don't have to be. Don't tell me like, yeah, just do some better stuff. Don't. The gospel says, no, I'm free. In the gospel of Jesus, I'm free. Salvation is free. How? By faith in Christ alone. That's where true hope is found. That's where true life is found. Let shame be the redemptive gift of God. He wants it to be in your life to drive you back to him. And listen, we don't hang our heads forever. I was talking about this before the gathering with one of our members. And it was like, no, absolutely not shame forever. But temporal shame to God lifts our heads? Absolutely. And we repent and he reminds us what is true, that we are loved, that we belong, and that he calls us his own. So what do we do? Let me end just real fast with some practicals. How do we move forward into maturity around this area of shame? We don't want to run from it. We want to run through it. We want to let God use it as a tool to draw us back to himself. What do we do? I'm going to hit him real quick. We just go back to our movements, beginning of the series, right? Number one, we go in. We stop. Okay, I'm not going to just run from this bad feeling. I'm going to wait in it, and I'm going to search my heart. Lord, search me. Know my heart. Everything we talked about in the first couple of weeks, right? God, why am I feeling this way? Is it reality? Is it not reality? Right? Is it because of something done to me? Is it because of something I've done? Is it founded and grounded in reality? Have I rebelled against you? If it is, show me. I need to know so that I can turn back to you. 
Number two, go up to God. Go up to God. Confess it to him. Repent. Trust him with working it out to forgive you, to heal you, to cleanse you, to make me new. Trust the gospel. Lord, you call me your own. You call me son or daughter because of Jesus. So I'm bringing this to you. This was wrong. I need you to remind me of what is true in Christ. Three, go out to others. Go out to others. Confess well. We all know one of the corrosive aspects of shame is that it makes us hide, right? It makes us pull back from God and from others. The gospel says you don't have to hide because it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. That's the good news of the gospel. So confess, confess well, own your sin before others. Uh, this one's not on my list, and I went back and forth, but we don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, four, 3B, uh, receive confession well. Um, if you're in community group and somebody is sharing, don't rush them past repentance. And so what happens is someone will say something like, I did this, and I just want to let y'all know, and, but I don't really feel bad about it, and so I think I'm good. Let people feel the weight of their sin, not unnecessarily, not for too long, remember, right, right duration, right amount, all of that, uh, but let it, let it be weighty, and don't let people rush past it, receive it well, and then when they repent, then remind them of what is true about Jesus, and remind them of what is true in Christ. Does that make sense? That's all I got. Let's take communion. Uh, on the night he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. Man, what good news that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus was thinking about the fact that one day, 2,000 plus years ago, 2,000 plus years later, we would need these reminders that all throughout church history, we would need to remember together what Christ has done for us. Because I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to forget the gospel. Like, I'm so quick to to want to hide and to want to run and to want to caveat and to placate for all of my sin. And yet the beautiful invitation of communion, and this is part of why we practice it every single week, is that we get to remember the gospel of Jesus together. Amen. So the night he was betrayed, you got a little thing. Uh, if you're not a Christian, this is one of the only uh, things we'd ask you not to do with us, not take communion with us, not because uh, we want to ostracize you or make you feel weird, but because you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. Uh, but rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe in Jesus, to, to um, trust in him as Savior and forgiver of your sins and Lord of your life. I'm down front every Sunday that I'm here after the gathering. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But for all of those who are in Christ, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. And so every Sunday we take a little wafer to remember the body of Christ put on the cross on our behalf that for the joy set before him, for the glory that was to come, Christ took the cross on our behalf. So church, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. And he said, every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing, you're remembering, you're celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. And so when we drink this little kind of disgusting grape juice, we remember the blood of Jesus, which the Bible promises is the only thing that will wash us clean. The only thing that will make us spotless before God. So church, in light of that, take and drink. We're going to respond like we always do uh, in a couple different ways. There's going to be some folks in the back on our prayer team who would just love to pray with you and for you about anything that's going on in your life or what's hitting you from the sermon. Let's all stand. 
And then I'm going to pray, and then we're all going to worship Jesus together. Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for these people that want to submit to your word and live under its authority, God. And so I pray that... Um, I said a lot, and so, so I pray that anything that was not of you, and anything not in line with your scriptures, Lord, that it would fall away, and that whatever it is you have for them from your word, which is true and everlasting, and is right, and is trustworthy, and is the authority, Lord, I pray that, that they would hear it, that it would take root in their hearts. God, you invite us to be people that are wise, and you say in your scriptures that the wise person doesn't just hear the word, but does the work. And so I pray you would make us doers. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, by your grace, God, would you make us doers of your word? Would you help us not run from shame, not run from these bad feelings that come with it, Lord? Would you help us run through shame, knowing that you are the one who lifts our heads, reminds us of what is true, that we are adopted, loved, chosen, and forgiven by Christ. God, I pray that you'll make us gospel people. Lord, would, would our church, would Citizens Church Charlotte be known for nothing else but being gospel people? And that we would let the gospel in all of its good news root so far deep in our soul that we can say to you and to ourselves and to one another, I'm not okay. And praise Jesus. Would make us those kinds of people. Would remind us of what is true. We need you. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.